Father God, we come before you this morning in the matchless name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would grab hold of our hearts and that you would incline our hearts to your glory. There are so many things in life that want to keep us distracted, even right here, right now. It can be school and homework and assignments. It can be friendships that are struggling. It can be marriage problems. It could be uh, financial worries. It could be deadlines for work. It could be hurt feelings. There's so many things that could distract us. And so we ask for your grace here now, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would incline our hearts upward to you, that you would open our eyes and we would behold your glory in your holy word that you would take our hearts here as a family in Christ and you would unite our hearts together to fear and treasure your name, God. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love through Christ. Father, we live in a world of lies, so lead us into truth. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth will be pleasing in your sight. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what only you can, and that is to take hearts that are perhaps even right now in sin, not believing in you, Jesus, and change your hearts. Give them the gift of faith. We ask that you would take the hearts of those who are followers of Jesus, and you would strengthen them to live and love you, Christ, more. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I made mention, um, it was a busy week. I was at a conference, and I did not want to, um, I wanted to give a, a more robust time of study in Luke's gospel, which we've been working through. So this week, we are looking at a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Next week, we'll resume our study in the gospel according to Luke, um, and be looking at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. But today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and I will be... Um, honest with you, my ambition is to look at verses 3 through 14, not exhaustively, but there is a good chance that that may not happen, and if that doesn't happen, then we may continue some of that this evening in our evening service. Um, so we'll see how far the Lord brings us. Um, we'll see if he uh, desires for us to finish during this time or not. So as you're turning there, I want to begin by talking about the human eye. The human eye is an amazing thing that God has created. Just looking at the design of the human eye would shut the mouths of all those who say there is no God because it is the human eye is created so intricately, so fine-tuned that it necessitates a wise designer. See, in order for the eye to see clearly, the cornea that's located at the front of your eye has to take the image and redirect it to the retina, which is located on the back of the eye. So poor eyesight happens when the cornea fails to do its job and it doesn't hit the retina with the image. If it comes up short of the retina, it's nearsightedness. If it misses behind the retina and overshoots, you get farsightedness. Now, in modern medicine, we have eye surgery, laser eye surgery, and that's what laser eye surgery tries to fix. It tries to reshape the cornea so that it can do its image transmission properly. 
And that could possibly help us understand what we're going to see in our passage today because people fail to see the glory of God in salvation. They fail to see it because sin prevents people from seeing the glory of God and from their hearts rejoicing in the glory of God. And so just like eight laser surgery reshapes the cornea so that the image comes into focus, God, by his grace, through the gospel and the proclaimed word and the working of the Holy Spirit, gives spiritual sight to sinners so that they can see the glory of God in Jesus through salvation. And after that happens, after God brings a sinner into a saving relationship, gives them a new heart, they now have the ability to have spiritual sight. They have 20-20 spiritual vision to some degree. They're progressively getting, I guess you can say, seeing it clear. It's coming into focus. But their eyes can now see the glory of God, especially in salvation through Christ. So that the glory of God in salvation is what we're going to be seeing in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 through 14, uh, and then we'll begin. But the main idea, the main truth I want us to see in this passage today is that men and women were created to behold and delight in the glory of God in their salvation. Men and women were created, uh, were, were created to behold and delight in the glory of God in their salvation. So let's read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, for an administration of the fullness of all times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we've also been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end that we who have first hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's a mouthful. That's one sentence in the original languages. Um, so I might have been better at grammar back then than I am today. With my run on sentences. But there is a treasure trove here. There are so many things that can be preached out of here. We can spend easily months here. We see the Trinity. We see salvation. We see the gospel. So what I really want us to focus on is, like I said, the glory of God and salvation. That's our focus this morning. Our first point is the glory of God the Father. 
we see the glory of God the Father in verses 3 through 6. He begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our New Testament, the word blessed is almost always used when it's speaking about God. Now, it is possible that we read that and we would take it to mean that God is worthy to be praised, and that is 100% true. There is nobody more worthy in the world to be praised than God. But when Paul says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's not saying that we should be praising. He's making a claim about God's character. He's telling us that praiseworthiness is due to God because in God, he has all that makes him worthy of praise. He is blessed. Therefore, we ascribe praise to him. So the focus here at this opening verse is not so much on what we are to do, but on who God is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, there's enough truth right there really to stop. Because nothing in all of life is more appropriate than for us to praise and worship God for who he is apart from us. Paul starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say that apart from what he's done for you? Can you just look and behold the character of God and say, blessed be God? Do you find him? Do you see his intrinsic worthiness? I'm not saying not to bless him for the gospel, because the gospel is the chief means by which God showcases who he is. That is even why in our church, if you were to see our values, we say gospel driven. Because the gospel is the vehicle that brings us to God so that we can behold him. So we praise him for the gospel. But beyond that, do we praise God for God? Do we praise him for who he is? When we used to have full Sunday night services, we, used to, we were going through a series on the attributes of God. And I would commend to you to study them, and we can talk if you want a resource on how to do that. Because the more we understand the character of God, the more we can say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he goes on to say, blessed be the after the blessed section, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When it says every spiritual blessing, it is talking about everything that you and I have received through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That statement in verse 3, you can say, is setting the stage for everything Paul's going to put through verses 14. These remaining 12 verses unpack that dynamite phrase right there, that you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice, Paul is saying that as a fact. These blessings isn't something you're hoping for. 
These blessings aren't something you're going to receive in the future. These are blessings that the church in Ephesus had right then and there. In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of being in this pagan culture with idolatry and false teaching abounding, Paul tells them everything you need, every blessing in, in the heavenly places is yours in Christ. So in the midst of our culture, in the midst of a society that tells us we need this and we need that, we are reminded everything you need for a life of godliness has been given to you through the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our present day reality, not simply our future. I'll put it this way, church. Our feet may rest on earthly soil, but our blessings reach to the furthest corner of the heavenly places. I want you to think about that. You may be in a hard season of life. You may be lacking. We have some who are even going through, where is there going to be our home in the future? It's not that we don't lack some material things in this world, but the focus Paul is saying is that even though your earth, your feet are on earthly soil, all that you need to know God, love God, and please God has been given to you in Christ. Every blessing in the heavenly places is yours. And again, it's notice he says here, they've been given to you in Christ. God didn't give them to you because he looked at you and said, you know, you're pretty great. You're pretty great. I want to give you some stuff. That's not why, church. God's not, you know, I know you're going to be really disciplined and you're really going to work hard and you're going to earn it. So I'm going to give it to you, but because you worked hard, you're going to get Christian of the month and I'm going to give you some extra blessings. That's not it at all. Every spiritual blessing we have has been given to us because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, and that because of by faith we are united to him. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has secured this for us, and we have them because our life is literally found in him. We saw that in Colossians 3, 4. So these blessings come from union with Christ, which is an amazing doctrine a few, two weeks ago or last week drew made reference to it as well when he preached out of second timothy it's a doctrine worth study of its own so let me just make some passing remarks about this union we have with christ being in christ means that we are no longer defined by who we are in ourselves maybe your life is marked by a lot of sin before you came to christ it doesn't define you. You're defined by who you're in now, Jesus. Your identity isn't defined by the things you did. Your identity is defined by the things God has done in Christ. Your identity is defined by the perfect life of Christ. Your life is defined by the substitutionary death of Christ. Your life is defined by the glorious resurrection of Christ. Who he is and what he's done now defines who you are. 
This is why God the Father can look upon you and delight in you and be pleased with you in every capacity, and he can love you with the same quality and quantity of love he has for his son, because by faith you are in Christ. And because Christ is the king, because he is the glorious son who sits at the right hand of heaven, because he is the one whom the Father has withheld nothing from, being that you are in him, he has withheld nothing from you. So you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our identity is also defined by this new relationship God has given us through Christ. Our identity now is defined by our, eter our eternal destiny now is defined because we are in Christ. All that you are. You are who you are because you are in Christ. For the Christian, the Christian can't say, this is who I am apart from Christ. There is no you apart from Christ. So it's not only that your blessings are in Christ, your very life is in Christ. Pastor John MacArthur summarizes the two truths here with his following quote. Quote, when we bless God, we speak good of him. When God blesses us, he communicates good to us, end quote. Church, I don't know about you, but this is something I forget a lot. I forget so often that I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though God tells me in his word that I have all these blessings, I find myself sometimes struggling with discontentment. I find myself asking God for things that he's already said he's given me. Maybe, for example, a husband and a wife get into a disagreement. Something simple. Where do you want to go eat? Maybe not so simple. Um, right. Supposed to start out as a date night, it ended up into World War III, right? And both spouses are sitting there looking at one another, but inside they're saying, Lord, just give me patience. But we already have that in Christ. It's not give me patience, it's Lord, let me lay hold of the patience that I have in Christ already. Or you have to make a decision, what should we do? Lord, give me wisdom. And there is a sense in which the spirit of wisdom has already been given to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by the preservation of his holy word. The issue isn't give me wisdom. The issue is let me apply the wisdom that is available to me in Christ. Maybe you have a teenage son or daughter and they crashed the car. A little small fender, but then take out the mailbox. And you're like, Lord, give me a loving heart. You have a loving heart if you are appealing to your union with Christ. You have the heart of Christ. The love of Christ has shed, been shed abroad in the heart. Or maybe it's give me joy. Working this mundane job that I hate. The Holy Spirit indwells, who is the, can be said, the spirit of joy. Go look at the fruit of the spirit. These things are available to us. So often we're asking for things that we have what we should be asking is that we lay hold and apply and submit ourselves to those things. Because we, he's not saying you will be given every spiritual blessing. He's saying you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When I was in seminary, one of our preaching courses, 
professor highlight, told us to highlight this verse. He said it's a good verse for boneheaded preachers. 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And he made the point, in Christ, you have been given everything. Now, in his context, he was saying, so don't deviate from the word. He's given you all in his word that his people need for life and godliness. But the principle is true. There is nothing we lack, church, if we are in Christ. But if you have all the riches of the world, if you have all the blessings and praises of men, but you have not Christ, you are bankrupt. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let me put it this way. If God the Father has given you his Son, what more could he give you? He's given you the highest treasure of heaven. And then he's gone a step further. He said, not only have I given, you to him, given him to you, I look at you and you, you are in him. You are united to him. Now verse 4 goes on. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we see the glory of the Father because he's blessed. We see the glory of the Father in that he blesses us in Christ. And we see the glory of the Father in choosing us in Christ. The doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election, a glorious doctrine that is more often debated than leading to devotion. Dr. Joel Beakey says the following, quote, the doctrine of election is a friend of sinners, end quote. It's beautiful because that's exactly what election means. God, election is God's sovereign act to bring people who are dead in their sins to faith in Christ, whereby they become children of God. Let me say that again. Election is God's sovereign act in bringing people who are dead in their sins to faith in Christ, whereby they become children of God. Election is an important part of your adoption package. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this doctrine of, of, of sovereign saving election is unpacked, and I wish we could even read it, but time, time doesn't allow. But I would encourage you this evening, read second, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 tonight. It'll warm your heart. And the word elect is almost always used in a positive manner in the New Testament. Because almost always it's talking about being elected unto eternal life. So election, as we see, therefore, is closely tied to our union in Christ. Because we have been predestined, elected to be in him. And that in him is just mind-blowing. We, church, we were chosen because of who Christ is and what Christ has done on our behalf. God the Father, as we're going to see here, he says, before the foundations of the world, God the Father always had in view redeeming a people through Christ and for Christ. As we'll see if we get there tonight, later this morning, that election of being in Christ 
the elect, the people of God who have found faith in him, we are called his inheritance. We are Jesus' inheritance. And because we are united to Christ, let me just say this as a word of comfort to you. You're never alone. You're never alone. You may have moments where you feel lonely. I grant that. I struggle with that. But because of our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes with our union with Christ, there is never a moment where you should feel truly alone, abandoned, and unloved. Again, verse 4, before the foundations of the Lord, of the world. So there's a sense also, church, where you could think about this. You belonged to God before time began. Before he created time, he had made you his possession. Now, our minds can't understand that because we're finite, so we can only think in categories of time. So even the statement I said doesn't make sense. There was a time before time where you belonged to God. But listen to what Revelation chapter 13 says. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That book of life whose names were before the foundations of the world. Now this turn, I want you to see the comfort here. And this is the glory of the Father here. Because from eternity past, he had elected people unto himself through the work of his Son. Our salvation does not rest on our finite, imperfect, unstable ability, but our salvation rests upon the unchangeable choice of God. That does not mean that we may not go through seasons of doubt. That doesn't mean that we may not backslide and go through seasons where God seems far from us and that we are enduring the disciplining hand of God. But all those who have truly been elected before the foundations of the world in Christ can have assurance of salvation. Our church holds to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. You can find it on our website. Go pull it up and go pull up the chapter on the assurance of salvation and study it. I'd also commend to you uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. There's a chapter in there that he talks about assurance, and he says some have more assurance than others. But God wants us to have assurance, and that assurance doesn't rest on our performance. Our, that assurance is to rest on God's election in Christ. Remember, church, you are saved by the object of your faith, not the size. The doctrine of election, I guess, can be likened to a little boy who clings to his blanket at night because it helps him sleep securely. It's a security blanket. You see that little kid can't sleep? But that blanket just provides comfort. Let election be that blanket that provides comfort to you. Because God has elected you in Christ before the foundations of the world. But notice why he elected us. It goes on in verse 4. 
that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So God didn't elect you to live however you want. God has chosen you before the foundations of the world through the life, death, burial, resurrection of his son. The spirit takes the work of Christ, gives you a new heart, brings you to salvation. You marvel that a holy and righteous and good God could love a sinner. And he says there's a response. And that is that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. The purpose of our election, we were elected unto salvation, but also to sanctification. We are to be positively, he says, we are to be holy. Holy meaning to be set apart by God, dedicated to God, and in the employment of God. God has set you apart for his purposes. God has set you apart to be and represent him. If God is holy, his children are to be holy. So we see our election sets us apart. And then he says to be blameless, to seek to live lives that are free of the stain or blemish of sin. To seek to live in a manner of moral purity according to God's word. You don't get to say, I've been saved by the blood of Christ. I have become a child of God, and now I get to go sleep around. You don't get to do that. Because those actions show that perhaps you've not been elected. You don't get to say, I've been elected before the foundations of the world. Now I get to be a drunkard. I've been elected before the foundations of the world, so now I get to just not control and bridle my tongue and let loose on my spouse. I've been chosen by God to be my own God. You don't get to do that. Holiness and blamelessness involves every aspect of our lives. Everything we think, say, do, and desire is to be marked by a pursuit of holiness and blamelessness before God. It is the response and purpose of our election. A life that is growing in holiness and blamelessness is the evidence or the fruit of that election. Not the basis of your election, but the fruit of it. Listen to Colossians 1.22. But now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So church, as you and I pursue this life of holiness and blamelessness, we can also do that with confidence because the very thing God calls for, he empowers for. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. As we yield ourselves in submission to the Holy Spirit and through God's holy word, he will bring about this holiness and blamelessness. But when we are not submissive and when we rebel against God, we work against that. But God promises that for all those who are truly his, for all those who have truly been elected, God will bring about this holiness and blamelessness. And there's a tension there that I'm not going to try to resolve. There's a tension in which you better pursue holiness, you better pursue blamelessness, lest your fruit show you're not saved. But then there's also the truth there, Philippians 1.6, that God will bring it about for those who are truly his. And he brings those two together and 
Perhaps other men can explain it. I'm not smart enough to try to explain that one. I see both those truths in there. And so I'm going to tell you that we need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue that and have confidence that if we truly are given over to the Lord, he will bring it about. And he goes on. For him in love, verse 5, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. Church, again, we say this often during communion, but God is motivated by his love. God didn't elect you and save you out of necessity. No one was twisting his arm. His good pleasure, his love. And when we talk about God's electing love, we're not talking about cheap, emotional, hallmark love. We're talking about robust, biblical, covenantal love. A love that says, I'm not going anywhere, and my love for you isn't changing. The kind of love that the world needs to learn about and marriages need to pursue. Parents need to pursue with their children. Biblical love is not so much of an emotion, though there are affections, and those are two different things. Biblical love, though, is a, a posture of the heart. It is a posture of the heart that says, I will seek the well-being of another, even if I must endure the greatest of sacrifices. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't do what our culture does and wake up one morning and say, well, I've fallen out of love with you. God says the complete opposite in his word. Turn to the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22. There's a beautiful verse here. The loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. His love motivated his predestining, electing act of salvation in your life. There's been a lot of confusion over the years, a lot of debate over these terms, predestination and election. To predestine means to be marked out beforehand. An election is the actual choice God makes in salvation, so it's a little more specific than predestination. Now, God didn't say, as some like to wrongly espouse, that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would choose him, so he chose you. No. God chose you before the foundations of the world, before any act on your part. So we think about this, a couple things. We have no grounds of boasting 
or taking credit of our salvation. We have no grounds on looking at somebody who perhaps is choosing at this moment to live in rebellious sin and think, what don't they get? They're just so hard-headed. It's obvious. God opened your eyes. That's why you saw it. He fixed your spiritual cornea. We need to pray for God to open the eyes of others. We need to be broken, not boastful. He marked us out before time began, intimately elected us into his family when we were sinners. All we can do, church, is really step back, put our hands over our mouth and say, thank you. Now, some people have made the claim that this election and predestination of God is nothing but cold determinism. Mechanistic. But it says here, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's not cold-hearted. That's not determinism. That's red-hot, holy, beautiful, glorious love of God. It is a personal, life-giving love that the Lord gives us. This is why men like John Newton, a former slave ship captain, wrote things like this in his beautiful hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. He recognized God saved me. God chose me unto himself when I was the worst of men. Those who see the predestining and electing of God as cold as an impersonal do not know the heart of God. And notice it says to adoption in verse 5. Predestining us to adoption. Whether you've had a good father, a bad father, no father, in Christ... All who have trusted in him have now a glorious, perfect father. Do not allow your earthly father to shape your view of your heavenly father. Rather, allow your heavenly father to show you the grace you should show to your earthly fathers. He adopted us. Which again, bringing brought into God's family, of course we should be holy and blameless. We bear the name. We, there was a time in our country where a name carried something and you'd want to carry and represent that, that name well. Even most recently, politically, one of the Kennedys throwing their name into the ring. And that brings about all sides of what does it mean to be a Kennedy? What does it mean to be an adopted son or daughter of God? We're holy and blameless, not out of fear. We're holy and blameless before him in love, as it's said. God has created us for himself. In the beginning, it was the creation to be in fellowship with God. Adam broke that. Man has been estranged from that. But through Christ, we're reconciled to that, adopted back into a family of fellowship. We are to be his children and enjoy his presence always in Christ. By sin, we lost this, but by God's grace, it's been given back to us in and through the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will unpack in verses uh, 7 through 12 especially. But he wraps up this section here 
Again, by showcasing the glory of God in our salvation with the goal of the Father's election. What is the ultimate goal of God in salvation? Is it to have you for himself? Is it to have a packed house at that family dinner at the Lord's marriage supper of the Lamb? Is it to reunite you with all your friends and loved ones that you lost? Is it to be free from sickness and death? Is it to live in perpetual happiness? Is this why God, is this God's ultimate goal in all of it, though much of that is true? No. The ultimate goal, purpose in God saving, predestining, electing a people to himself is his glory. So look at verse 6 with me. And let's, beautifully, all of this wraps up here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace god wants his glory to shine brighter than 10 million suns in his saving sovereign grace through christ so let me ask you church do you see the glory of god the father in the salvation you have god has done all this not because he had to but because he wanted to he wanted you to see his glory, to rejoice in his glory, to praise him for his glory, to ascribe to him all glory due. His choosing you, blessing you, sanctifying you, predestining you, adopting you was all done because it brings him delight. It gives him pleasure because in his saving sinners, through the Lord Jesus Christ, his glory of his grace shines radiantly forth. And so you could say that even in the darkest and rainiest days of your life, there is a glory that can break through any cloud. He desired for us to see and savor him. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I've created for my glory. You were made for the glory of God. People often ask, like, I feel like my life has no purpose. People say, I feel like my life has no purpose. What am I here for? I'm going to die. None of this matters. What am I slaving away at work for? Why am I studying such mundane concepts in high school math? What is all the, what, none of this matters. It feels purposeless. None of it's purposeless. If you recognize that God has saved you, he predestined, elected, saved, and is sanctifying you, for his glory. For you to be a trophy of his grace. So it's become, it's become evidently clear we're not going to get through to verse 7. <laughs> so this evening we'll seek to unpack the rest of this section. So let me land the plane here by saying this. 
How do you respond to these truths? How do you respond to the truth of the glory of God the Father in these verses? We'll see the glory of God the Son tonight. How do you respond to the glory of God the Father in your salvation? First, take a step back and take it all in. You know, we live in a culture with this digital age, and um, my generation is interesting because we lived before the whole social media, smartphones. And so I do remember, like, being places without phones coming out. But I also know the world now. And I remember in 2016 being at the Cubs playoffs right when they clinched a pennant. And as all that's happening, this is how everybody was seeing the game, with the phone in front of their face. They weren't actually taking it in. They were allowing this contraption to take it, but they were actually missing the momentous event that God sovereignly ordained of the Cubs going to the World, going to the world Series for his glory. No, <laughs> they took it all in cheaply. They didn't really take it in, the sights, the sounds. When it comes to the glory of God the Father in our salvation, let's take a step back and just take it in. Let the, let the weight of that hit your soul. And then open your eyes and ask God to open your eyes even brighter that you can behold your God. Let it humble you and remove grounds for boasting. Let it break your heart that there are so many who don't know that glory of the Father. Let it move your mouth and your lips to lift up songs of praise and worship. I think the Apostle Paul got it right, of course. In Romans chapter 11, Paul unpacks some of these glorious truths. But at the end of Romans 11, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. What's his response to these, glo these salvific glories? Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So church, take it in. Take it in with me. We've been blessed by God in Christ. We've been chosen by God in Christ. We've been predestined by God in Christ. We've been adopted by God through Christ. So let us give glory to the Father for all that we have, all the spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly places in Christ. And tonight we will look at that Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning humbled. Humbled that you would freely desire a people for yourself. We know that in, from eternity past, you have always had perfect love, fellowship, joy, happiness, and delight within yourself in the Trinity. That you, Father, have always perfectly delighted in you, God the Son, and that you, God the Son, our Lord Jesus, have always delighted perfectly in the Father, and that the joy and love and expression and perfect apprehension of each other was so full and so great that you, Holy Spirit, are there as the love between. We thank you that you have brought us into this triune glorious relationship of love we thank you that though we have sinned and strayed and rebelled 
that you in your sovereign saving grace from eternity past before the foundations of the world predestined a people, elected a people, in the fullness of time saved a people, and that you've adopted people to your family, that you're still doing it today. So Father, as we rejoice in all that you are we ask holy spirit here and now that you would grab hold of our hearts and that this would be the rocket fuel we need to do all that we can to open our mouths to declare this glorious saving gospel of christ so that more men women and children around the world would come to know the glory of god the father in salvation through christ and we long to see the glory of God the Son in salvation tonight and of, the, and of the Spirit. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Again, verse 4, before the foundations of the Lord, of the world. So there's a sense also, church, where you can think about this. You belonged to God before time began. Before he created time, he had made you his possession. Now, our minds can't understand that because we're finite, so we can only think in categories of time. So even the statement I said doesn't make sense. There was a time before time where you belonged to God. But listen to what Revelation chapter 13 says. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That book of life whose names were before the foundations of the world. Now this turn, I want you to see the comfort here. And this is the glory of the Father here. Because from eternity past, he had elected people unto himself through the work of his Son. Our salvation does not rest on our finite, imperfect, unstable ability, but our salvation rests upon the unchangeable choice of God. That does not mean that we may not go through seasons of doubt. That doesn't mean that we may not backslide and go through seasons where God seems far from us and that we are enduring the disciplining hand of God. But all those who have truly been elected before the foundations of the world in Christ can have assurance of salvation. 
Our church holds to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. You can find it on our website. Go pull it up and go pull up the chapter on the assurance of salvation and study it. I'd also commend to you uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. There's a chapter in there that he talks about assurance. And he says, some have more assurance than others. But God wants us to have assurance. And that assurance doesn't rest on our performance. Our, that assurance is to rest on God's election in Christ. Remember, church, you are saved by the object of your faith, not the size. The doctrine of election, I guess, can be likened to... A little boy who clings to his blanket at night because it helps him sleep securely. It's a security blanket. You see that little kid can't sleep? But that blanket just provides comfort. Let election be that blanket that provides comfort to you. Because God has elected you in Christ before the foundations of the world. But notice why he elected us. It goes on in verse 4. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So God didn't elect you to live however you want. God has chosen you before the foundations of the world. Through the life, death, burial, resurrection of his son, the spirit takes the work of Christ, gives you a new heart, brings you to salvation. You marvel that a holy and righteous and good God could love a sinner And he says there's a response, and that is that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. The purpose of our election, we were elected unto salvation, but also to sanctification. We are to be positively, he says, we are to be holy. Holy meaning to be set apart by God, dedicated to God, and in the employment of God. God has set you apart for his purposes. God has set you apart to be and represent him. If God is holy, his children are to be holy. So we see our election sets us apart. And then he says to be blameless, to seek to live lives that are free of the stain or blemish of sin. To seek to live in a manner of moral purity according to God's word. You don't get to say, I've been saved by the blood of Christ. I have become a child of God and now I get to go sleep around. You don't get to do that. Because those actions show that perhaps you've not been elected. You don't get to say, I've been elected before the foundations of the world. Now I get to be a drunkard. I've been elected before the foundations of the world, so now I get to just not control and bridle my tongue and let loose on my spouse. I've been chosen by God to be my own God. You don't get to do that. Holiness and blamelessness involves every aspect of our lives. Everything we think, say, do, and desire is to be marked by a pursuit of holiness and blamelessness before God. It is the response and purpose of our election. A life that is growing in holiness and blamelessness is the evidence or the fruit of that election. Not the basis of your election, but the fruit of it. Listen to Colossians 1.22. Colossians 1.22. 
But now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So church, as you and I pursue this life of holiness and blamelessness, we can also do that with confidence because the very thing God calls for he empowers for Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. As we yield ourselves in submission to the Holy Spirit and through God's holy word, he will bring about this holiness and blamelessness. But when we are not submissive and when we rebel against God, we work against that. But God promises that for all those who are truly his, for all those who have truly been elected, God will bring about this holiness and blamelessness. And there's a tension there that I'm not going to try to resolve. There's a tension in which you better pursue holiness. You better pursue blamelessness, lest your fruit show you're not saved. But then there's also the truth there, Philippians 1, 6, that God will bring it about for those who are truly his. And he brings those two together. And perhaps other men can explain it. I'm not smart enough to try to explain that one. I see both those truths in there. And so I'm going to tell you that we need to by the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue that and have confidence that if we truly are given over to the Lord, he will bring it about. And he goes on. For him in love, verse 5, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. Church, again, we say this often during communion, but God is motivated by his love. God didn't elect you and save you out of necessity. No one was twisting his arm. His good pleasure, his love. And when we talk about God's electing love, we're not talking about cheap, emotional, hallmark love. We're talking about robust, biblical, covenantal love. A love that says, I'm not going anywhere, and my love for you isn't changing. The kind of love that the world needs to learn about, and marriages need to pursue. Parents need to pursue with their children. Biblical love is not so much of an emotion, though there are affections, and those are two different things. Biblical love, though, is a a posture of the heart. It is a posture of the heart that says, I will seek the well-being of another, even if I must endure the greatest of sacrifices. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't do what our culture does and wake up one morning and say, well, I've fallen out of love with you. God says the complete opposite in his word. Turn to the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22. There's a beautiful verse here. The loving kindness of Yahweh 
indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. His love motivated his predestining, electing act of salvation in your life. There's been a lot of confusion over the years, a lot of debate over these terms, predestination and election. To predestine means to be marked out beforehand. An election is the actual choice God makes in salvation. So it's a little more specific than predestination. Now, God didn't say, as some like to wrongly espouse, that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would choose him, so he chose you. No. God chose you before the foundations of the world, before any act on your part. So we think about this, a couple things. We have no grounds of boasting or taking credit of our salvation. We have no grounds on looking at somebody who perhaps is choosing at this moment to live in rebellious sin and think, what don't they get? They're just so hard-headed. It's obvious. (laughs) God opened your eyes. That's why you saw it. He fixed your spiritual cornea. We need to pray for God to open the eyes of others. We need to be broken not boastful. He marked us out before time began, intimately elected us into his family when we were sinners. All we can do, church, is really step back, put our hands over our mouth and say, thank you. Now, some people have made the claim that this election and predestination of God is nothing but cold determinism. Mechanistic. But it says here, according to the good pleasure of his will, it's not cold hearted. That's not determinism. That's red hot, holy, beautiful, glorious love of God. It is a personal life giving love that the Lord gives us. This is why men like John Newton, a former slave ship captain, wrote things like this in his beautiful hymn. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. He recognized God saved me. God chose me unto himself when I was the worst of men. Those who see the predestining and electing of God as cold as an impersonal, do not know the heart of God. And notice it says to adoption in verse five, predestining us to adoption. Whether you've had a good father, a bad father, no father in Christ, all who have trusted in him have now a glorious, perfect father. Do not allow your earthly father to shape your view of your heavenly father. Rather, allow your heavenly father to show you the grace you should show to your earthly fathers. He adopted us. Which again, bringing brought into God's family, of course we should be holy and blameless. We bear the name. 
We, there was a time in our country where a name carried something and you'd want to carry and represent that name well. Even most recently, politically, one of the Kennedys throwing their name into the ring. And that brings about all sides of what does it mean to be a Kennedy? What does it mean to be an adopted son or daughter of God? We're holy and blameless, not out of fear. We're holy and blameless before him in love, as it said. God has created us for himself. In the beginning, it was the creation to be in fellowship with God. Adam broke that. Man has been estranged from that. But through Christ, we're reconciled to that, adopted back into a family of fellowship. We are to be his children and enjoy his presence always in Christ. Christ. 